Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. Today we have a guest who's written a fascinating new book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, which of course is Christianity. Rebecca McLaughlin holds a PhD in Renaissance Literature from Cambridge University and a theology degree from Oak Hill College. She's the co-founder of Vocable Communications and former vice president of content at the Veritas Forum. So she has spent a lot of time interacting with people on these questions. Rebecca, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Let me just start off by asking you personally, what motivated you to write a book where you're tackling 12 of the toughest questions that, frankly, a lot of people hope don't come up in conversation? Mm. You kind of took them head on. So what's the story behind this book? <laughs> Three different things. So firstly, ever since I've been a serious Christian and wanting to tell my friends about Jesus, and I happen to be in very secular, quite academic environments from, from that time onwards. So I just have always had a desire to share the gospel with friends, and my friends have tended to be on the nerdier end of things. So they, they've had some really hard questions. They've had some really good reasons for not considering Christianity. Number two, as you mentioned, I spent nearly 10 years working at the Veritas Forum, and one of my core parts of my role there was identifying Christian professors at leading secular universities in all sorts of different disciplines, from physics to philosophy to psychology to literature, and helping them to think through how they could speak about their faith in relation to their work and giving them a platform to do that. And at the end of that process, I, I felt like I had this map of the Christian intellectual world and some of the, the most extraordinary people who God has raised up in the university and, and put at the very top of their fields and that very few people knew about them. I mean, folks within their discipline might well know of their research, but few people would know they were Christians. And many people, in particular students walking into their classes on campus, were getting the impression that different fields of the ac academic world had disproved or discredited Christianity and actually, I knew people who were world leaders in that field who were very serious Christians, some of whom had even become Christians when they were already serious sort of academics. So there was just this information gap. And I thought I'd love to write a book that would give that map to Christians uh, in general and, and also to non-Christians. And it would be a resource that people could not only read for themselves, but give to their friends. And then just the, the third piece uh, that flowed into this for me was my own a lifelong experience of, of same-sex attraction and the fact that when gay marriage was legalized in America a few years back I just I just mourned and lamented the ways that I felt like churches were often actually not doing a great job of, of representing an orthodox view of, of sexuality um, either within the church or, or, or to those outside so I just felt like I wanted to, to play my tiny little role in, in helping um, folks think truly biblically about these questions and to uh, actually put Jesus back at the center of this conversation rather than marginalizing him or misappropriating him as, as some um, more progressive arguments tend to do. Well, Rebecca, we think you've done a great job at accomplishing the, the goals which you set out to, with, to write the book. Uh, and I, I particularly really like the way you started the book by making the claim that Christianity is actually out-competing 
both secularism and more theologically liberal face. This is pretty mm-hmm. counterintuitive, especially from a, a Christian community that uh, oftentimes feels like it's under siege from a sec- increasingly secular culture. But you actually have data to support this claim. Can you spell out a little bit what the, what that data is and why is it so important for the Christian community to understand this point? Sure. So 40 years ago, pretty much every sociologist of religion worth their salt believed that the world was becoming less religious. The theory was as the world in general became more educated, more scientific, more modern, that religious belief would naturally decline. And the best evidence for this was what had happened in Western Europe, where modernization had brought secularization. And the assumption was that where Western Europe led, the rest of the world would follow. (laughs) It turns out that was a very myopic and somewhat sort of white Western-centric view of things. And in the in the last forty years, that prophecy has actually failed. the The secularization hypothesis, as it was called, has been disproved. Not only has the world failed to become less religious up to this point, but now, as sociologists look out over the next forty years to twenty sixty, they're in, anticipating an increasingly religious world, uh, one in which Christianity will continue to be the largest belief system, actually growing slightly from about 31% of the world identifying as Christian to to 32% in 2060. Uh, They expect that Islam is going to increase dramatically from roughly 25% to more like 31%. Um, Buddhism and Hinduism are set to decline slightly. And the proportion of people of no religious affiliation, which includes atheists, agnostics, and people who would just say none when asked for their religious affiliation, is actually set to decline from 16% to 13%. So rather than the, the tide going out on religion, it's actually coming in. It recalls the statement of the late Richard John Newhouse, the American Catholic theologian, who said that the secularization thesis has everything going for it except empirical evidence. <laughs> and it sounds like your, da- right, your, data, right. your data proves him correct on that. Well, I'd say everything going for it except empirical evidence and the history of the church. So it's it's predicated on the idea that when people get more educated and when people learn more about science and when people just kind of get with the program, they're going to be less persuaded by the message of the Bible. And that forgets the fact that Christianity is the greatest intellectual movement in all of history that, that gave birth to modern science, that gave birth to much of um, modern ethics, that gave birth to some of the greatest literature in the world. So this idea, oh, well, when people actually start learning, instead of just having faith, they'll they'll throw religion in general and Christianity in particular out, is based on a faulty assumption in the first place. I love hear, hearing you describe Christianity as an intellectually vibrant movement. Mm. Uh, and I think that's true. And the history of the church shows that. Can you share just maybe some of the lessons or reflections you have from working with some Christian professors in some of the leading secular institutions in the world that not only hold on to their faith, but kind of help advance the Christian cause in their unique disciplines? Mm. I think in the last maybe 100 years or so, in America in particular, and not, not wanting to just point the finger at America, but given that that's, that's where we are, that, that's where we can start, we have bought into this idea that Christianity is basically anti-intellectual. And I think there have been good reasons for this. So we've started with the the idea that the gospel is really at heart very simple and something that a child should be able to grasp or somebody without any 
academic background or, or you know, particularly strong mental capacity should be able to embrace. And that is absolutely true. Concluded from that, that having faith and following Jesus sort of orients us away from um, academic study and away from the really hard and complex questions of the world. And actually, I, I think it should orient us in the other direction. And so talking with many Christian professors at leading secular institutions, they'll often find that not only do they feel like the, the odd one out in their, among their academic colleagues where their faith is seen as something of an oddity, they can also be seen as the odd one out in church where people are maybe a little suspicious of them or just don't really know what to, to do with them because they're a serious Christian and also someone who is uh, in, in the academic world and not, not in a hostile way, but um, as very much a, a vibrant contributor to it. And I think it's easy for us to forget that, that Christians literally invented the university and, and universities like Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge were originally founded to bring glory to Jesus. So whereas there are certainly ways in which the complex um, ideas and uh, exploration that um, academics pursue today can raise real and substantial questions when it comes to faith, and some of the ones I've tried to engage with in the book, the idea that at heart Christianity and the university are, are sort of hostile um, adversaries versus some friends um, is one that I think we need to to gently get rid of. Rebecca, I think one of the most helpful things about your book is how you take some of the most common objections to Christian faith and turn and actually turn them upside down right on their head. Um, for example, you, um, it's, it's, not, it's not uncommon to hear people claim that the world's better off without religion. Uh, you know, Christopher Hitchens made the point that religion poisons everything. Yet you make a really strong case that religion, as, as you put it, is like a, quote, miracle drug. Uh, so tell it. What do you mean by that? And uh, and what, what do you mean by the? Or what are the benefits of religious faith uh, to a person's you know emotional psychological health? Mm. One of the wonderful professors I had the pleasure of getting to know while I was at Veritas is a man named Tyler Vanderveel, who is a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health, and he studies professionally the mental and physical health benefits of religious participation. And it's actually quite impressive and, and extraordinary. So it, it turns out that going to church once a week or more has been correlated with people um, having 20 to 30% reduced mortality over a 15-year period. So you're literally living longer. Um, the health benefits are such that they're equivalent, actually, to something like quitting smoking. You know, we, we all know that smoking is wow. bad for us, but quitting smoking and, and starting going to church turn out to be equivalent health interventions. Uh, likewise, eating more fruits and vegetables, we know that's good for us, but going to church once a week or more is, is equivalently good for us just physically. Does that mean if, does that mean if, and if, then I, there are the if I go to church, I don't have to eat my fruits and vegetables? <laughs> do, you know, do you know, I'm just now finishing the, the kids' version of my adult book, and one of the points I make in the first chapter where we talk about these things is I sort of put in brackets. So if you hate Brussels sprouts then just ask your parents if you can go to church instead of eating them. Oh, I like that. <laughs> or I sometimes say to adults, you know, you know, take up smoking and keep going to church and you'll be on a par with your secular <laughs> friends who don't smoke and don't go to church. Um, so there are the physical benefits and then there are the, the mental health benefits, including you know, 
lower instances of, of depression and, and sadness and suicidal ideation. Um, and, and it's it's actually quite extraordinary. So uh, Tyler Vanderveel wrote an op-ed for USA Today a few years ago where he, he called uh, religious participation uh, like a drinking and elixir to improve our mental and physical health. And one of the things he referenced there was the fact that people who go to church uh, once a week or more are less likely to, to kill themselves than those who don't. And I was impressed with this at the time, but then just a few weeks ago, I actually looked at the article, his articles that he was citing on that. It turns out it's it's a five times difference. So someone who goes to religious um, services once a week or more is five times less likely to kill themselves than somebody who never goes. We hear so much, and rightly so, about suicide prevention initiatives. You know, there'll be public health statements about that. There'll be you know school curriculums um, about that. Do we have? Any, and Tyler says that religious participation is is probably the the best protective against suicide that we know of. I mean, do you ever hear kids being told like, actually, go to church? <laughs> um, that that may be your best strategy. Yeah, that, that's not in the suicide prevention. That's not in the suicide <laughs> prevention curriculum. Uh, it's not, and maybe it no. should be. <clears throat> and to be clear, so the effects are not limited to Christianity. So you could be going to a synagogue once a week um, and have similar effects. But but it is limited to religious participation. So going to the golf club once a week, and doing a shared activity with the same people only seems to have about 20 to 30% of the same effect as, as religious participation. So it, it, there does seem to be something particular about religious participation in terms of its benefits for us. So let me ask you this question. You, I appreciate in the in the chapter you say this doesn't prove that Christianity is true. Mm. So what does it prove and what follows from this? In the first chapter of my book, I'm essentially asking a non-Christian reader, and the book is actually written primarily to a non-Christian, to just give Christianity another look. Because I can understand if you think that religion in general and Christianity in particular is simply bad for people, and the world would just be better off without it. I can kind of understand people saying, you know what, I'm not going to even take the claims of Jesus seriously. I'm not going to waste my time looking at what the Bible has to say about the world. But if instead you find that active religious participation is really good for people and actually also very good for their pro-social behavior, I mean, people who go to church every week in America give 3.5 times as much money to charity as their they volunteer twice as much, they give more blood, they're half as likely to engage in domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. And once you see that kind of effect, you might start to think, I wonder if there's something in here. Because m- my friends who are, are not Christians absolutely want the world to be a better place. They, they care about people's health and happiness. They, they care about suicide prevention. Um, they care about people not being... Um, swamped in, in depression and, and sadness. And so to say, actually, just looking at the empirical data paints a pretty impressive picture of Christianity. Let's then take a look at what the claims of Christianity are. I think that's so wise in terms of the approach, because I've often said that skeptics, when they look at Christianity, the primary question is not, is it true, mm. but is it good? And they won't even entertain questions about its truth status mm. if they think yeah. it's bad. And that brings me to a next question that I love you tackled in this. And it's the idea that Christianity is a white man's religion mm. that crushes diversity. And you argue the opposite. You say, actually, 
white men, so to speak, are late to the Christian story, and it encourages diversity. Can you unpack that that chapter? Yeah, I think this is one of the most important moves that we as the church writ large need to make in the public sphere and in private conversations. And we carry into this, especially in this country, we carry into this a history of racism, um, of which, you know, we, we must be ashamed and repent those of us who um, you know, have uh, come from particular racial or cultural backgrounds um, for the ways in which you know, Christians have, um, in, in horrible ways, oppressed um, black Americans um, and are currently actually um, treating you know, immigrants of color very differently than they would treat somebody like me, who is a, a white immigrant from Europe. Um, so I think you, I, I want to sort of have an appropriate humility as we go into this conversation. But having said all that, I think we need to reclaim diversity. We need to recognize the fact that the New Testament, anti-racist and pro-diversity document in the, the history of the world, really, that, that Jesus actually invented the idea of love across racial and cultural difference, um, both by breaking through those barriers in his own um, life and ministry, and then by telling his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. People are often surprised here that we find the first African Christian in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch of chapter, Acts chapter 8. And so there's this idea that Christianity really sort of began as a, a white Western religion and then was exported um, as an act of cultural imperialism to places like Africa actually doesn't really wash if you look at the, the deep history of the church. And then we need to look around ourselves at the global church today and realize, gosh, the most typical Christian, both in the world today and in America, is actually a woman of color. And ironically, atheism is the worldview most associated with white Western men and communist regimes. So in general, women are, are often more religious than men, but the effect is particularly pronounced with Christianity. Uh, and it seems that Christianity has always been a majority female movement. Um, so people who care about sort of diversity when it comes to, to gender need to pay a little more attention there. But then when it comes to race, I mean, the, sadly, it, it is white Westerners who are becoming less religious. And that, that's truly something to, to lament. Um, that Christianity is declining in, in the white Western world. Um, but on the other hand, Christianity is, is thriving and growing um, both globally and um, among black and brown um, folk in, in America and, and um, also in my country. Rebecca, let me, <clears throat> let me take it, uh, the material on women just a little bit further. Uh, the, mm. the, 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 the chapter in your book on, on the question of whether Christianity denigrates women or not, I think is, is a really important one. But you look at it a little bit differently, I think, than most people do. You look at it by looking at the big, the big story of the Bible overall. Mm. Help us see how your discussion of, of Christianity and women fits with the, the overall big story of the Bible like you described. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think this is the cornerstone both for how we think about men and women and for how we think about sexuality, actually. The Bible tells a story in which male and female have theological meaning, actually primarily because of, of the metaphor uh, of God as a faithful husband and his people um, as his wife. And so we, we see this in the Old Testament as prophet after prophet compares God to this faithful, loving husband. 
and Israel, his people, to an often unfaithful wife. And then we see Jesus step into human history and declare himself to be the bridegroom. And we're thinking, okay, what's that about? It's sort of a slightly strange claim. But if you have uh, that Old Testament um, lens in place, then you realize, okay, he, this is one of the ways in which he's actually claiming to be step, stepping into God's role. And then we see that extraordinary chapter in Ephesians chapter 5, um, when Paul compares or describes human marriage as almost like a little scale model of Jesus's love for his church, Jesus's marriage to his people. And then in the book of Revelation, we see an announcement that the wedding of the lamb has come and and Jesus's marriage to his church, bringing heaven and earth back together. So we have this, this big picture, this big love story going on throughout the pages of scripture that positions God as in the role of husband and and us as in the role of, of his bride. And when we have that in place and when we recognize that actually the gospel of Jesus's love for us and his sacrifice for us lies at the very heart of God's whole picture of humanity and creation of humanity even from the first that reshapes how we think about what it means to be a a man or a woman um, and what it what what sexual or romantic relationships mean i think we've done a good job in church history of teaching that um, you know the bible says that god is our father and so as we think about the best possible human father that maybe gives us a little tiny glimpse of god's love for us and we actually see the, the metaphor of God as mother um, several times in the Old Testament as well. So, you know, the, the, the best possible human parent gives us a little picture of what it means for us to be loved by God as his children. I think we have undertaught the other metaphor or one of the other metaphors, which is God as husband lover and, and us as wife beloved. And I think if, if we put that at the center of our understanding of what it means to be male and female, what it means um, to what sexuality means, that then um, le- allows everything else to click into place. So let, since you mentioned Ephesians 5, our, our listeners would not forgive us if we let you off the hook uh, and, and, and without asking you to make sense of the, the passage in Ephesians 5 that mm, mandates wives mm. submit to your husbands mm. as unto the Lord. Uh, so help uh, help us fit that into mm. this big picture that you've already described. When I first seriously read Ephesians 5, I was a, an undergraduate at, at Cambridge University. I'd come from a single sex, very academic school. Um, and the the verse, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as, as Christ is the head of the church, was kind of like a sock between the eyes. <laughs> It was not a pleasant experience. I, I, I'd read in the Gospels of Jesus consistently elevating women uh, in defiance of the cultural norms of his day. And here it seemed was Paul squashing women down again. Uh, I would have eagerly accepted any interpretation of that verse that wasn't okay, it's saying that wives should submit to their husbands. <laughs> um, I looked for, for those um, options and I found it really hard. I think the, the transition came for me when I, I read on in that passage and it, it sort of sounds silly to say, I mean, clearly I read the whole passage in the first place, but I was so um, shocked and almost uh, concussed by that first verse that I don't think I really listened to the rest. And Paul goes on, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
And as I pondered on that, I thought, okay, how, how does Christ love the church and give himself up for her? He dies for her. He, he submits to death naked and bleeding on a cross in, in utter physical and emotional and spiritual agony for us. And I thought, how would I feel if that was the role given to wives? And wives submit to your husband and wives love your husbands as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like wives put your husband's needs above your own, being willing to um, taste death for them and sacrifice um, yourself on their behalf. And I thought, oh, that actually sounds more like a mandate for spousal abuse than than what the Bible actually says. And that's sometimes one of the charges against this verse is to say, you know, saying, telling wives to submit to their husbands is basically enabling abusive men. Um, clearly that verse has been used by abusive men in horrible ways. But actually anyone who is truly reading that passage for what it's worth and anyone who truly looks to Jesus as the ideal man and the ideal husband, which is how the New Testament presents him, cannot conclude that husbands are to oppress their wives or to um, put their own needs first or to assert their superiority, actually quite the reverse. And I think when I started to understand, no, this is this is not about gendered psychology. It's actually about Christ's theology. I was able to breathe a sigh of relief and say, okay, um, wives submit to your husbands. It is not about women being less intelligent than men or less good at decision-making or less X, X, Y, or Z than than men, it's actually about us picturing for the church how we submit to Christ. Um, And I've had a recent transition just in the last few years. I've been married now for 12 years to a really good man. Um, And we Christians are always looking for guidance from God and and sort of somewhat wishing that there would be, I don't know, a, a cloud formation in the sky telling us, you know, giving us guidance in hard situations we find ourselves in. I realized in the last couple of years that when I'm in a hard situation, I can ask Brian for his view of it. And because of the promises of God and because of, of, um, you know, that passage in Ephesians 5, I can kind of expect to get some insight from the Lord through that process. Which again is not to say that everybody speaks the, the words of God to his wife, uh, regardless of whether he's commending sin or you know what, whatever terrible thing he might possibly be saying. But actually, if if you are married to a man who is, um, however imperfectly, seeking to to follow the Lord, in prayer and a, a diligent study of the Scripture, you kind of have the the blessing of being able to go to him and saying, "Hey, I, I don't know what to do in this situation. Can you can you tell me?" And taking that as a word from the Lord. That's powerful. I appreciate especially the larger balance you bring that we can't take this passage apart from the larger themes of scripture right. and who Christ is. So that's that's really helpful. Thank, thanks for bringing that to bear. I, I have one more question for you uh, and kind of want a, a two-part question. Number one is the question, isn't mm. Christianity homophobic? Now, my two-part question is, I'm curious, you mentioned at the beginning of the book just kind of briefly about same-sex attraction. And then you say, I'll get mm-hmm. back to this in chapter nine. And that part of your life doesn't dominate the book. And I thought, gosh, she could have totally left it out, could have made it dominate the book. So I'm curious why you integrated it the way that you did. And then just second, how you answer that charge gosh, that Christianity is homophobic. <laughs> um, so, so number one, I, I, <laughs> I, I put 30 it seconds in, or in less. the introduction or in the beginning of the first chapter because I thought, gosh, I, I was a really boring 
student. Like my student, my story is actually really dull. <laughs> um, so I'll mention this here because then people you know, will have something slightly more interesting. Um, than this was just a very keen Christian girl coming into college. I, I think this is one of the biggest questions uh, of our our day, and one of the ways in which Christianity in the eyes of many um, around us just falls flat on its face. Uh, the idea that Christians, for, for no apparent reason <clears throat> other than homophobia and fear of, of otherness, um, seek to constrain sexuality. And in particular, there's some extent to which my non-Christian friends could understand Christians saying sex should only be in marriage and that there's like fundamental importance of commitment and not promiscuity. But why we would say, actually, marriage also must be between one man and one woman versus between two men or two women, that just seems um, unfair and prejudiced and all, all the bad things. And I think in order to have any um, credibility and gospel centeredness in that conversation with our friends, number one, we need to do the work explaining, actually, the Christian view of sexuality is more weird than you think because it's fundamentally about Christ and the church, not about men and women. Um, number two, I think we need to look carefully at how the New Testament handles this question and, and recognise the New Testament was written into a culture where same-sex sexual experiences were thoroughly normal, uh, not for Jews, but in the Greco-Roman world uh, in which the, the first Christians were living, um, the idea that a man was meant to be faithful to, to his wife was strange and bizarre. Um, it was fine for men to sleep with, with other women, but it was also fine for them to sleep with other men. Um, and that there was a, a level of acceptance uh, um, of, of same-sex uh, sexual activity that um, you know, we might be surprised by uh, with our, our modern sort of preconceptions of what the first century was like. So, so the New Testament, it is written into a world where there's a lot of sex going on between all sorts of people and in all sorts of ways. And one of the, the shocking moves that the early church, church makes is actually to um, come up with this, uh, you know, or advocate for sex only being between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. It, it's, a, it's a shocking thing. And then we need to look at the question of, well, are Christians being um, judgmental and superior when, and looking down on, on others um, when they you know, prescribe this for Christians? I think there it's very interesting, even when you read, for example, Paul's first letter to Timothy, um, which is one of the places where he mentions um, the prohibition on, on um, homosexual relationships. In the very same chapter, um, you know, that's chapter 1, verse 10, in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom he is the foremost. So this, this idea that Christians are coming with a posture of, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm better than you are, or like I'm, I'm, I'm morally pure and, and you gay people out there are, are morally impure, doesn't actually wash with even the, the scriptural texts that address this in particular. Recognize that within the church within any church of, of any substantial size there will be christians like me who um for whatever reason and I, I frankly think whether people are whether it's a genetic predisposition or cultural environments or whatever you know experiences all of that is almost irrelevant the, the reality is that there are people like me who um are 
oriented towards romantic and or sexual relationships with those of their, their same sex primarily. Um, and that's the reality within the church. So it's not just a kind of them and us, like there are the Christians over here and the LGBT community over there. It's actually, there are Christians within your church who experience same-sex attraction. Um, and the reality is all of us as Christians are going to be called to say no to our attractions um whether we're straight whether we same sex attracted um whether attracted people of both sexes that that jesus actually calls all of us to self-denial in this area um and to only um focus our, our our sexual desires on at most one other person to whom we're married so this is actually this isn't natural for any of us really i mean there are few straight men who are naturally monogamous um so I, I think to some extent we're all in the same boat but i think we also need to live like that we need to stop um treating christians who experience same-sex attraction differently from christians who who struggle with sort of other sex attractions um i think we need to be people who will um gladly listen to the struggles of our brothers and sisters in a, in a way that is encouraging and non-judgmental um just as we would listen to any anyone struggling with any area of sin and i think we need to come alongside each encouragement toward christ and i think ultimately christians who are saying no to same-sex desire because they believe in the better love of jesus are the most powerful witness to our culture today wow that is a strong word to end on. I appreciate you saying that. And that raises a ton of questions that I would have for you that maybe we can unpack another time in the future. <laughs> Rebecca, uh, Scott and I, and just the larger team at Biola are so thankful for your voice. We appreciate you speaking biblical truth, not shying away from these tough issues, but approaching it biblically and compassionately in the way we aim to do here at Biola as well. So I want to commend your book, confronting christianity to those who are listening great book for christians to work through if you have tough questions you want answers to or consider giving it to a friend who's not a believer and say hey would you read a chapter and once a week or once a month let's just talk about this together that's why she wrote the book so rebecca thanks so much for coming on thank you this has been an episode of the podcast think biblically conversations on faith and culture to learn more about us and today's guest rebecca mclaughlin and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and please consider sharing it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.